K.O. Good evening, everybody. Tonight we have Dr. April Putsey, uh, and uh, she is, well, let me just go ahead and let her introduce herself. So, uh, Dr. April, Dr. Putsey, uh, could you please give a brief introduction of yourself or who you are and what you do? Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm, um, I'm Dr. April Putsey. I'm a senior lecturer in Roman history, so the history of ancient Rome, uh, in the UK at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I've been teaching and researching Roman history for the last 15 years or so. Um, and I work mostly on histories of family, women and children in the Roman world. Uh, I said uh, th this this particular podcast for me is really interesting and like uh, like I'm really excited about it because uh, I've been uh, I've been interested in Rome for the longest time and I haven't met anybody else who had who's had that interest you know oh. and, uh, so uh, it's for me it's super exciting to have somebody who actually knows the material to like to you know hear things from so uh, but um, so as so you're uh, you're working as an academic right now in Manchester. Um, what, um, what, so if you're an academic, you're probably working on, on a couple of different papers, a couple of different projects. What are you working on these days? Um, well, quite a, a number of things at the moment, but my, my big project is on, uh, which I, I work with a colleague together in Finland and we're trying to reconstruct the lives of children and young people in one city in the Roman world. So what we're doing is looking at Egypt. So Egypt after Cleopatra, uh, so the period we, we all know about, the first two, three centuries AD. And that period of Egypt, we have a lot of Greek and Roman influence. And the big cities, so one of the main cities, which was called Oxyrhynchus, um, is based on classical Greek and Roman models, but also has a lot of Egyptian and African traditions. And what we're trying to do is use all of the, the evidence from that city and around it to try and think how young people would have existed in the city, but also to see how cities work. So we, we think that in the ancient world that the cities were very youthful places, so all of the economics, the society, the religions, the politics, the work, uh, the labour, everything really depended on young people. So children would work from age 10 years upwards. They might be involved in politics, depending on their social position. We also know of slavery, unfortunately. Um, but we know of young people being very much the heart of, of how the ancient cities work. So the big project that we're working on at the moment is to look at all of the material from around that big city uh, and to try to put together a picture of how the city worked, but how young people really kind of engaged with life in this area. So we've got thousands of documents because every aspect of life was, was written down in a document. There was always a receipt 
for everything or a, a private letter to explain some yeah, the Romans of... were very notorious about that. The, Nor- the Romans were better at that than everybody at keep administration. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, the, the reason why a lot of people would argue is that, that the Romans were very good at wanting to tax people. So, so they're always very good at counting people uh, and accounting for every transaction that could be taxed or, um, you know, keeping a, a, like a census of people. We know that in Egypt there was a census, a household census, uh, in which people, of course, um, maybe bent the truth on who was living there because the more uh, men over the age of 14 in a household, the more tax those households have to pay. So as historians looking at that period, we have a lot of material and we have to look at it sort of in some depth to try and figure out what was going on. But yeah, you're quite right. In the Roman period, we we have so much material that was written down our problem or our challenge as historians is to try and put that into some kind of, of order. So, you, you know, we find the, the written documents, um, then they're kind of written on, in Egypt anyway, they're written on scraps of papyrus paper. Uh, and the way those papyrus of, papyri have come to us is, uh, you know, there's a whole story behind how we, we get that material. So it's not just a simple case of, of it existing in an archive somewhere. These things were, were, were dug up by archaeologists in the 19th and the early 20th centuries. Um, and some of them have been, you know, come to us on uh, uh, less, than, less than clear trade markets for these kind of documents. So it's very difficult to, to piece together a full picture. Um, but what we can do is to try and use them as a kind of window uh, to look into different areas of life for for individual parts of cities or families um, and try to get these little little micro studies, micro case studies of, of different areas of life. So in these documents we have, um, I'll, I'll tell you some examples of the kinds of things that were written down. So one, one big piece of uh, material that we look at is um, documents of apprenticeship. So young people aged 10 upwards may have been um, apprenticed. So in a way that we know from other periods of history, we get uh, young people being taught a trade. So usually in the textile trade, uh, they would learn to weave. They would be apprenticed to uh, somebody who owned a workshop and they would um in return learn the trade they would be there for a number of years and be under the uh well they would give free labor in essence to the owner of that workshop in return for learning a trade so the extent of the um the coercion and the dependency is something that we 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 need to look at a bit more but all of these arrangements were written out in formal contracts so we have a lot of those kinds of documents that we can look at. Very convenient. Uh, sorry? I said very convenient. Very convenient for them to leave. Very convenient. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting because it's, you can look at these, these documents and they're all very, they're like a, a formulaic document that detail the hours of the day, the terms of the contract, who is making the contract, and what rights and privileges the young people might have. 
I have a question. Um, mm -hmm. Do do your colleagues who only who only do research in maybe pre-Roman civilizations look at you in envy for all the material you have to work with? Um, yes, but it it works the other way as well. I have colleagues who work with later periods of history, and I look at them with envy <laughs> because we have you know uh, fifty documents or a hundred documents and. Some of my modern colleagues will have thousands of documents. Um, it's there are different challenges to different periods of history, and I think that these documents are great. If you if you're like me, I'm very inquisitive, and and I really like to poke around in the documents of daily life. Uh, and you know, you can find things. You you sometimes have to stretch the imagination a little to try and figure out how in this contract all the people who were named how would they have experienced this this life day to day um as an apprentice you have to um think a little bit beyond what's written down on on the papyrus but yeah i think that it's and, and, it's and it was it was papyrus right it was papyrus right because i um i'm kind of mixed on this on this particular point like i read sometimes that they were using wax tablets and then there was papyrus mm -hmm. i'm not sure which is accurate and which is not or if there was a phase where they phased out the wax and started using papyrus yeah it's um we have a lot of wax tablets from the roman period from all around the roman world uh so it's if you rem you have to remember that the roman empire at the height of the Roman Empire, we're talking about not just Italy and Rome, but we're talking about Britain, France, Spain, Germany, and then in the East, Af North Africa, Egypt, Syria, even to the very edges of the what what we would now call uh, the the Middle East. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of material from all of these different places, uh, and by far the biggest amount of material we have is on actually on stone. We have inscriptions, so things carved onto stone. Um, but all of the papyrus came from Egypt, and uh, the second sort of most prominent source is uh, is papyrus, and we find that all around the Roman world. But the wax tablets we find particularly. Um, in the context of education and learning, we find people practicing on wax tablets how to write in Greek and Latin and, and so on. So we, we do have a lot of that, but as you say, it was kind of not, not the most prominent source. We also have another uh, type of uh, material, which is uh, ostraca. So an ostracon is a piece of uh, pottery, so an old... Uh, wine jug or something broken into pieces and people would um write on those so we know of those from particularly in the later roman empire where we get christianity and in egypt we have loads of monasteries and at those monasteries we have lots of these ostraca with with notes written on them as well so um if I understand correctly, uh, the use of wax tablets would, would vary from region to region and upon availability too. And the same thing with papyrus. It wasn't, it wasn't an era where they stopped using, uh, using one and started using the other. No, I don't, I, we can't say with any certainty um, or precision what was used where. I think, but yeah, the, the, the use of wax tablets was an issue of availability, sure. Uh, papyrus became far more 
available and inexpensive. Um, but also, if you think about writing, the main issue is less about the availability of the material and more about um, the literacy. So to do any writing, the majority of the population would, would use a scribe, so somebody who's, whose profession it was to write things out. <laughs> so, you know, lots of people would not have written these documents themselves. They would have uh, used a local village scribe or a royal scribe or um, the, the, the local scribe whose profession it was to write everything down. So That's we, yeah, we we do see uh, scribes have a lot of power, and we know, particularly in Egypt, we even have uh, scribes that we can recognise by their handwriting styles. So we we know of very uh, very prominent, high status, wealthy, powerful, and well connected people. The most famous of which was Cicero's way. Uh, well, yeah, Cicero in the sort of earlier earlier period than the one we're talking about, he uh, was a politician and, and uh, yeah. No, yeah. but I mean, his scribe was the most famous one probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, his, his, well, he enslaved uh, uh, scribe, yeah. So we have, it's, it's not just an issue of literacy, it's an issue of which languages people were proficient in and had the skills in. And a lot of these people uh, in Egypt would either have been of high status or they would unfortunately have been enslaved people uh, so the languages used in the roman empire would have been latin but all in the eastern half of the empire would have been greek so anyone who could speak and write in in both greek and latin but also in egyptian languages as well uh, would have been very much in high demand um, and when we're, so my colleague and I, when we're trying to reconstruct the lives of young people, for instance, in this city of Oxyrhynchus, the documents that we look at are all written in Greek, um, very good Greek as well. So it was very much the prominent language of educated people in this high status kind of city. When you talk about young people in, uh, in that city at that time, uh, they have to be further subdivided, right? Because you had the high status ones, you had the, mm -hmm. you had the slaves, and you had uh, everyone in, in between, right? How many yeah. were in between anyways? How many different castes were in between uh, the senators and the slaves? Yeah, oh, in that well, <laughs> this is a, a really difficult question to answer um, in that it's still a question that's up for debate. And a lot of scholars of Egypt, particularly in the Roman period, um, really have this this debate about what who are the elite, and to a great degree that depends on where you are in the Roman Empire, but also where you are in terms of are you in a city, a town, or a village, and how how big and well connected is that place. So, for instance, across the Roman Empire, you know you had senators, you had knights, and then you had enslaved people and poor people. You, you then had everyone in between, but you also had freedmen. So people who had been enslaved and then freed, they became quite wealthy and well-connected in many cases. We've got such great evidence for uh, people who had been slaved, enslaved and then become very wealthy and, and connected and powerful. We, we can't really use the, sort of, the word class. We can't sort of divide people into middle class, upper class, lower class, 
it's it's a bit more complex than that and a bit more difficult to to figure out and partly because there's so much anxiety so all the sources we read uh talk about all of these lower classes in such derogatory ways that it's very difficult to 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 really get to the the truth of it okay uh now um from 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 popular literature uh, pretty much everybody knows uh like what the what the life well a little bit anyways the basics of what the life of a teenager would be if he was a senator's son yeah yeah you know he, he would go into military service a tribune blah blah, blah depending on which uh, but then uh, as far as like the son of a merchant goes uh, that's not talked about much um, mm-hmm. or uh, yeah a tradesman uh, something like a, a smith a carpenter or or a retail merchant what would what would the life of a teenager born to a merchant or a um, or a skilled um, artisan be like very difficult is the simple answer to to this um, we're talking about a world where uh you know even when we have lots of cities across the roman empire it's still a very agricultural uh economy and trade when it happens in cities is very um it's it's not as organized uh, as we might think in the most modern of economies so life would have economically been very very difficult and it's not the case that as a child you would be in school or education or anything like that. Part the family uh, and the family business would have been literally the family business. So we've got evidence of young people from very young ages doing the work uh, uh, with their families. So trading, being merchants, being working in the uh, the tanneries, the workhouses, uh, the and, and as I mentioned earlier, apprenticeships uh, and so on. We even have evidence in the villages and rural areas of young boys being shepherds as well. So walking great, we have a 10 year old boy uh, walking great distances every day with sheep uh, backwards and forwards and ferrying things around. Uh, so we know life was, was difficult um, in those, or oh, very real <laughs> in, in those ways. Uh, we know about, you know, lots of of this kind of stuff, particularly from Egypt. And what we can say is that there's no reason that it would have been very different in a big city like Rome. In fact, it would have been harder in a city like Rome because we have lots of um, very unsettled kind of economics and lots of uh, urban poverty and difficulty as well. So living standards were not exceptionally high among the general population. So I think particularly in agricultural settings um, or in trade settings in and out of cities, young people would have actually done a lot more. Uh, they would have been a lot more mobile than we might think. So travel would have been important between cities and the regions outside of cities. Uh, and we know of this from lots of inscriptions on stone and documents on papyrus. How um, early... How early in life would you could you expect to be sent out to work as a uh, just a son of a carpenter or something like that? Well, the the evidence we have, as far as I can think, the youngest person would be the youngest person I can think of is a ten year old. Um, the the boy I mentioned, the shepherding, 
that's we have evidence for for young boys that age um they didn't tend to write down in these documents their ages very precisely so we we don't tend to have a very precise age in many of our documents so we have to estimate but where we do have the age written down they are very very young um and we of course have lots of families across the roman empire where the father in the family would have signed up to the roman army uh, and so the family would have been would have comprised mostly of of women so we've got lots of evidence of what happens when the men in the family join the army which was this huge machinery of the roman state and at various points there were benefits to joining the roman army um after your service you earned citizenship perhaps or a plot of land at the end of service so it was a very you know a, a good opportunity for hundreds of thousands of of men which meant that families were you know lots of um different branches of the same household all caring for the children uh, between them so lots of children would have been with their mothers working in the field so we we know that women would have taken on the roles of um of the agriculture or the trades that that, that the men would have, have been doing had they not signed up to the army so but this is the sort of thing that we don't see in the documents very very much but we we know happened how would uh, like um okay so you have formal education which can or cannot take place in, in a country or in a group of people but then you but then you also have like let's say just like you have the lingua franca you have like the language of the people you also have the rules of the people things that people learn do do do's and don'ts that people learn at home not in a formal setting but just you know uh, it's something that everybody you know um everybody learns uh, say hi when you say when you see somebody on the street things like that yeah. what what would be like what would be like some of the things that uh that would be compulsory for uh, for a teenager to learn in that age oh, okay so these things would have been very very different these these kinds of cultural um manners i guess uh and just values social and family values would have been very different depending on local custom or um religious custom so when we think about the ancient world we think about a world where you know in small villages or towns religion had a lot more prominence on people's everyday life than than we might than than it might do today certainly in uh, the modern western world um you know so so these kind of values would have depended on the region so we know in egypt for example uh, certain parts of egypt still had traditions of um local deities local religions uh depending on which city you lived in so there were particular um things that we know about from visual material so in egypt we have these things called the mummy portraits so images painted on wood uh that were part of grave and funerary art that depict uh children and women and young people who had sadly died and it's from this source material that we know things like this so we can pick up on 
gestures and manners and clothing and hairstyles and jewellery and those sorts of things that were all very particular to particular things. So, for instance, in one part of Egypt, there uh, was a particular cult or religious group where the young people would have um, what's known as a particular type of haircut where they would have their head shaved and have two strands of hair or tufts of hair at the front of and uh, like a, a lock of hair at the side and would dress and speak in a particular manner. And that was very particular to that that cult, that religious cult that was prominent in that particular region. So it's very difficult to answer the question <laughs> because the kinds of customs and manners that we know about from any written sources are all very, very high um, status senators uh, and the language that they would use and the appropriateness that they would give to, to certain people. But that's just such a small minority of people, a very tiny minority of people in the city of Rome who were connected even to the emperors or the imperial family. Everybody else, we it's a side of life that we just, it, it doesn't get written down. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those hidden things that's, that's so prevalent and universal that nobody writes it down because everybody knows it, which means that we don't know 2,000 years later some of these things. So we have to get them from, um, from the art and, and, and archaeology and so on. Um, yeah. What about... What what about the what about the poets and the social commentators? Surely they had something to say about uh, everyday life. Yeah. So when we look at everyday life, you know, so poets and social commentators, you know, most of the sources talk about war and politics and so on. Lots of the the Roman and classical Greek sources, even whenever they refer to everyday life, they they're not interested in everyday life. They're interested in status and politics. And they use everyday life as a way of um, trying to persuade people of a certain thing. So, for instance, you know, when we, when we hear about young people and children in some of these sources, it's always with a view to trying to give a metaphor um, for political engagement. So, you know, people like Aristotle and Plato talking about childhood, they'll talk about speech and they'll talk about people's speech being uh, very childlike. So when you're a child, you're not yet able to speak eloquently in a political way. You, don't, you haven't yet learned the rhetoric uh, that you need as a full politically active adult. Uh, and that's the only time we hear of any kind of discussion of, of everyday life we never hear in these sources about women unless they're being referred to to cast doubts on men's um uh, status or, or or values or so on so it's very difficult to try and get out the perspective either of women or children through a lot of these these kinds of sources um so we have to try and look for evidence that was produced by the people that we want to know about. That's the only way into understanding everyday life. So, and we're quite lucky in that respect. Uh, in Roman history, we have, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of 
inscriptions, papyri documents, all of these kinds of things. So it's there's plenty of material there for research. Uh, we just have to do the research and ask the right questions. I think. If you if you if your family could not afford, let's say a um, uh, a Greek uh, um, a Greek clerk or someone or somebody who could teach um, who can teach literacy, uh, how how did how did families that uh, were not a prominence how could, how how do you how how were how did people become merchants? Because it takes a certain amount of literacy to be able to to become a merchant. How how did that how did that take place? In terms of this kind of education, I'm guessing when we when we think about this kind of learning in the ancient world, it's it's very difficult because education is quite a modern concept. Um, and from what we know of education in in the ancient world, it wasn't something that was focused on children. For example, adults would would be educated, but it was restricted to the upper classes. So, in terms of literacy and learning Greek and Latin uh, or or whatever language, that would be something that you you just wouldn't go and learn unless you were very high status and involved in urban civic political life it just wouldn't be open to you um but in terms of um you know we've got lots of inscriptions where we know the latin is is not quite right maybe the grammar's wrong or the the um the the words are not formed quite correctly in in latin so we know that people have um have done the best they can in some ways uh we also have lots of graffiti um which might surprise some people that we know from places like uh, pompeii for instance in pompeii we've got lots of um you know lots of people visited pompeii for various reasons and would write on on the walls uh in in all manner of greek and latin and you know in in semi kind of formal greek and latin or correct or incorrect language uh so we know the levels of literacy were 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 at a certain level certainly enough for people to write their name or or short sentences or whatever but it it wasn't seen as something that was important to do beyond what you needed it to do so you could perhaps fill in uh, a tax receipt or something uh, and and put your name and we have on a lot of the certainly from Egypt, a lot of the documents and receipts we have, many of them actually say on the bottom of it, um, I don't know how to write, uh, so this has been filled <laughs> in by a scribe. <laughs> so it's like, filled in by X because I don't know the letters or something, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So we see that an awful lot, and it's quite common. So I don't think there's any any stigma attached to not writing uh, in in the language or you know, I think I think it just wasn't. It wasn't a world where writing was something that was that significant for for the majority of people to be able to do. Uh, the good thing about teenagers is that they're the same the world over. So there's yeah, yeah, things, yeah. <laughs> there's a few things that can be expected. So I'm just going to go ahead and make some, I'm going to make a few assumptions and then and then see where see where that takes me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so okay, so uh, generally speaking, if you have a teenager, there's going to be uh, rebellion. Um, 
and there's going to be uh, love interests. Um, there's going to be that awkward stage where uh, all the changes in the body are happening. Um, um, and I'm assuming these, these things don't, they, they don't just magically disappear during this era either. They're still there. Uh, have, you, have you found anything that speaks about these things? Any kind of drawing, any kind of like... Um, yes, we have uh, an account written by a teenager. So a very rare example where we think a young person has written the document and we get a sense of what it is they're feeling. And it's a teenage boy writing a letter to his own father. And it seems from the letter that his father is traveling a lot to the big city to do business and engage in politics and important things. And his son desperately wants to go with him. He wants to see the big city, the bright lights and enjoy the adventure. And his father won't take him. So he writes a letter complaining to his father. And it's very sulky and very sarcastic. He says, if you continue not to take me with you to the city, I'm going to misbehave. I won't eat my food properly. I won't be polite to you. And, you know, you can bring me all these gifts, but they're rubbish. I don't like them. Uh, you're a bad father. <laughs> so we get this sense of a sulky teenager. Um, we also have letters where we have parents or foster parents complaining that their teenage children are misbehaving. Uh, we get lots of, of different kinds of accounts of young people potentially complaining that their parents are not um, giving them money uh, or land and so on. But, but some of these complaints are kind of um, artificial because somebody is, is trying to push them. But we do get a little a little taste of what life is like. And when um, we look at documents that I mentioned earlier about apprenticeships, so when young people are working all together in a workshop or a barbershop or something where they're learning a trade, we get letters where young people write back to them after they've left. So we have one example of a young man saying hello to all his former uh, peers, his former kind of classmates, if you like, saying, hello, I miss you all. Say hello to all the other apprentices for me. So we do we do get a little taste of what life might have been like for, for young people. And we know that in the ancient world, in the Roman world, young people would have been surrounded with other young people. So there were more children and teenagers per adult than there are in most modern Western societies. So they would have been surrounded with other young people. So we can get a little taste uh, of teenagers being teenagers and children being sulky uh, and complaining and that kind of thing. So there was, so there was, uh, there was rebellion. Uh, or did you, did you find any kind of evidence of like, um, you know, the usual boy meets a girl a love story, teenagers? Uh, not so much. No, we, we, those kinds of things were were not written down. Uh, most of the the documents we have are kind of well, we have two types of documents. One is very formal, so it's things like um, a household census or a legal complaint or a receipt, that kind of thing, uh, or a contract. And the other type is private letters written between people. So it's very rare that we spot 
anything emotional uh, in 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 these apart from the example I just talked about with the the young boy writing to his father. But we get we get young people mentioning their friends and their siblings. So I can think of one example where um, two young people are writing to one another and they're discussing their younger sibling, who we think is a younger sister or a cousin, perhaps. We're not quite clear. And they're discussing about how to make sure she's okay because one of them's leaving home and they're a bit concerned that somebody is going to come and uh, try to marry the younger sibling and they want to look out for her and take care of her. So we get we get these elements of nice concern uh, of young people for other young people, for their friends and so on. In terms of romance and that kind of thing, we don't, I've, I've not come across any documents about that. Of course, sadly, what we do see is uh, discussions of sexual exploitation of young people, um, particularly in the later Roman period, um, where we see uh, in particular older men um, and their kind of uh, interactions with, with younger people. And that's that's something that's very difficult to, to discuss in particular contexts. And of course, some of these in the past have been discussed as romances. So you, we, we know about the famous, the Emperor Hadrian had a young lover um, who was a boy, a teenage boy, Antinous. And he actually named a city in Egypt after him, Antinoopolis, and was, was deeply in love with him. And we, we, we hold this in high esteem as a big uh, romance and a big obsession as well. But actually, you know, it's exploitative. It's an extremely powerful uh, man, the emperor, no less. And uh, a young boy who was perhaps only 13 when he came to know the emperor. So... It's it's as a historian we have to be very careful what we're looking at when we look at these documents. Are we actually looking at romance or are we looking at dominance and exploitation? So it's yeah, it a very jumbled together back then, right? It was love, romance, and and exploitation were kind of a mixed bag back then. Yeah, I think it's when when you think about love and romance and sexuality and and marriage. You know, we we tend to kind of forget that uh, modern ideas about marriage, romance, love, sexuality, they are very modern, <laughs> you know, and it, even a hundred years ago, these concepts would have been very, very different. So uh, when you think about two and a half, three thousand years ago, it's a completely different set of cultural values uh, and associations between, um, you know, what constitutes uh, sexual um, happiness and how that relates to romance and different types of love and romance you know uh, an erotic love or a um, you know a more platonic love or a more familial love you know we have all of these different types of concepts that mean very different things uh, in different contexts so it's I mean that's a huge that's a topic for you know a lot of different podcasts <laughs> um, I you know I can only touch on that sort of uh, in not much detail, but it's it's a huge area of study that lots of historians explore in a lot of detail. Yeah. One interesting thing about the Roman society, Roman, cult Roman culture, and I'm, I'm I'm guessing it's the same area where you go within the Roman realm is uh, this idea of uh, the the 
patriarch uh, or whoever is the oldest at that moment in the family has to say over the lives of all the others in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is um, it's really interesting this idea because, like most things to do with the Roman family, these things are legal in basis. So this idea of in Latin, it's called the patria potestas, the power of the father. And the eldest man in any family in Roman law would have had legal power. So no matter how old his sons were, even if they were 25, for instance, they wouldn't be allowed to marry or divorce without the father's permission. Um, and this is a very much a legal thing in in the city of Rome in particular, but across the Roman Empire. But you have to remember the Roman Empire is a huge place, you know, and if you live in perhaps Syria or uh, Egypt or France or Britain, you know, it's it's very difficult sometimes to see how much Roman law would apply in everyday life situations and how much people would even be aware of, of those laws. And also we have to think about um, the realities, the demographic realities. So it may be the case that if you're a 25-year-old man or a 20-year-old man, say, Yes, technically, your father could have this kind of power over you, this patria potestas, and be the patriarch. But in reality, he's probably not still alive. (laughs) You know, many 20-year-olds, their fathers would have died because mortality was so high. Uh, They may have gone off to war to fight in the Roman army. They may not even be there physically, even if they are alive. So in reality, the situation is very different. And one thing that we do try to explore a little bit more is how much power in these situations the women of the family would have that's and, very interesting yeah, yeah that, that's something that's not talked about much yeah it's, it's it's really interesting because in the ancient world women had very little legal power and to do anything legally in, in roman law you would have Apparently had to have what's, Spartan, right? yeah yeah <laughs> so you, you couldn't you had to have a, a guardian say so a man in the family, your brother or your uncle or whatever, would have to allow you to do something. But in Egypt, particularly, where we have all of the documents that I look at, we see the women doing things themselves, drawing up contracts, sorting out their son's financial arrangements, all of these kind of things. And part of the time, the men are never mentioned because they're just simply not there. <laughs> And we're in a world where women would marry much older men, so um, it would be very likely that mothers would still be alive, but fathers wouldn't be uh, in those situations. If the women are drawing up uh, contracts and that sort of thing, it would it would stand to reason that they have a higher level education than, than um, let's say, or maybe they could. How how did that come about? Because uh, it, I thought I thought that they that the women in Roman society were always kept um, slightly less literate. I guess. I <laughs> yeah, I guess there's there's an issue as well between what you know I mentioned earlier about this idea of literacy, and it might not be the case that you're educated in a formal sense that like you go to school, you learn all about the law, or whatever, but you learn enough about one thing to to manage your life. So. If you're a woman who, you know, we, we know of women who were engaged in business and trade, in the textile trade in particular, they would have known uh, which scribes would help them write out which documents. They would have known all about the taxation, all about the different laws that apply. 
they would have been educated in you know how how they can use the legal powers that they have and they did have some legal powers so you know it's not necessarily the case that you know women were kept behind closed doors and didn't do anything or know anything i think in practice in reality um we have to remember as historians that not everything was written down and we have to we have to think about what might have been happening behind the scenes of all of these documents that we read um and you know it stands to reason i think that even if you compare with societies around the world today where education formal education rates are very low women still do engage in all of these kinds of activities and knowledge bases um because that's just life and you have to to get on <laughs> so i think it's really interesting as a historian to try and look at you know to try and find things that are actually hidden from you it's really um we have to make a few assumptions but i think we have to avoid the assumption that that women and children were not involved in their own lives i think we have to remember that you know women had more agency than we perhaps might think they had in the past uh, especially if you look at the uh, the roman fiction yeah uh, yeah <laughs> um and no i mean like they they usually portrayed as uh, as uh, pretty powerful within the household and uh, mm-hmm. except for if, if you're talking about some sort of a high ranking senator or something like that yeah yeah and i think you have to remember with the fiction uh, one thing i love about you know when you think when you read greek and roman uh poetry plays drama all of these kinds of things what they're telling you is not how things were they're telling you about anxieties and thoughts about how things are so you know if you get the sense that um women are portrayed as a certain thing it's usually because the men writing these things are quite anxious about the growing powers of women or enslaved people or freed people or whatever we it's, it's so clear that that you know <laughs> there's a growing fear that that people have more power than these elite men want them to have so yeah oh for so. sure uh yeah. I, i think i think i saw some kind of an article a while back uh where they were talking about uh, uh a little bit of a social rivalry between the women of rome and the women of sparta being mm-hmm. in that the women of sparta are like supremely independent and also even um they're they 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 have a lot more power or something like um i don't know if you know anything about that yeah i mean the <laughs> it's really hard the first thing to say about sparta is that it's really hard to say anything about sparta <laughs> and this is because sparta was um the enemy of athens um in the 5th century bce and you know this this was at the heart of the what's known as the peloponnesian war um and the the spartans were not very good at recording or we don't have surviving much source material about the spartans that they produce themselves everything we know about them comes from the athenian sources and what they present to us is something that's that in the athenian mind would have been very very weird very very strange very very un-greek um so everything we see about sparta or know about it is a kind of exaggeration uh so we get all of these um accounts that that you know the children were were sent to run around naked in schools and eat together and yeah, yeah. 
and it's well you know that's that's probably not how it, the only thing the only way we we know about that is from these sources that are exaggerating things like that it's called the spartan mirage it's a kind of mirage that we see and it's the athenians showing you an athenian audience how how odd and strange these spartans seem that they even give their women power and their children power and you know they make their women tougher so that they can produce better tougher children <laughs> so there's really very little you can say about the spartans um yeah there's a really interesting sure. quote uh there's a, there's an interesting quote from i don't know who i don't even know if it's real or not but uh it, it was it's it's a it's a really cool quote um where um i think it was a, a greek woman uh, talks to a uh, a Spartan woman, and uh, the and a discussion ensues. And the the Greek woman is uh, says, um, it is hard to find. Uh, sorry, uh, something about great men. And then the the Spartan woman says, that's because we only make real men. We don't make any yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a good example of the kind of thing I'm 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 talking about. Yeah, it's it's. There's these very famous kind of sayings and lines that get repeated throughout um, the Athenian what? authors in particular, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Are there any Roman sayings that have survived? Oh, gosh, lots, lots and lots and lots. Um, I can't G- think give, me of... your, give me, your, give me your, top, your top five. I can't think of one now. You've asked me. You've put me on the spot. <laughs> oh, that is fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a lot of... Um, so in the late Roman Republic, so slightly before the period I talk about, the Roman senators, they're so often complaining about how the morals of the day have become loose, how how people don't care for their elders anymore, uh, how the, the times and the morals are getting worse and worse and worse. So, so there's a great saying in Latin, o tempores, o mores. It's like, oh, the times, oh, the morals. And it's Something that gets repeated. Oh, oh, temporis or moris. Oh, yeah. It's uh, like it's saying like, young well, well, people me. today. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And we get that repeated quite a lot, actually, in in many sources. It was a famous sort of saying. Uh, and, you these, know, are the type, yeah. these are the types of things that, that I find really, really cool, like uh, sayings <laughs> that, that have survived. You know, just to catch, like, I, w- I would love to know what, like, what, what, uh, what one of the jokes were from back in the day, like oh. one of the popular jokes <laughs> that Romans used. Are, are there, well, were there any comedians? Uh, no, the, Roman the... jokes are terribly unfunny. There's never a funny Roman joke. Um, it's, it's quite a, a well-known fact that the Romans were just not funny. Uh, or the sense of really? humour was very, very different to. Uh, I think a lot of the sense of humour would be to point out people's flaws. So I think a lot of the the sense of humour of the Romans would would kind of be quite upsetting to a modern ear because they would mock people's physical attributes and characteristics oh, so and that kind of thing. humour, basically. Well, kind of, yeah. Just and just not very funny. <laughs> But humor humor is a very cultural thing, isn't it? You know, what's funny to um you know, I watch say I, I'm British and I watch some American TV shows and don't find them funny. And I think, you know, American might watch be British comedy and just not see the joke because it's very grounded in your cultural kind of attitude. Oh no, I find yes, yeah. Mr. Very funny. Ah, uh, yeah, well <laughs> that's a classic, yeah. Extremely funny, I find it. <laughs> But there are other examples, though, of, I think, in the Roman world, 
um, a lot of the the stuff that's written down, as I mentioned, I think at the start of this this our discussion, was a lot of the stuff that was written down was written down by really elite, powerful men, and there was a kind of reverence for age. So every kind of aspect of power, certainly in politics and public life, was associated to your age. So older men tended to be more and more powerful. And so any kind of humour or complaints that we get, it's always about how the younger people are not respecting their elders anymore. So it's more of a situation, I think, where the Some older men deserve the expert. Yeah, they think they... They expect a lot of more reverence than they're actually getting. <laughs> well, so nothing's changed, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, there's, you know, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so, um, Chris Voss, which is, uh, Chris Voss is a, a guy who uh, was a um, CIA uh, negotiator for hostage rescues and things like that. He wrote a mm-hmm. book, and in his book, he called up, he, he has this term called uh, Black Swan. Uh, it's probably it, he probably didn't invent it, but uh, mm. basically what that means is that there's uh, there's a essential or interesting piece of information that you might have which I would never think to ask for, ah. uh, and uh, and uh, so that's what I'm what I'm gonna ask for right now is like what what are the things that, that that I could never think to ask you about, but that that you have found out and that are very interesting. Oh, I could talk another three hours. Uh, Go for but... it. <laughs> One interesting thing is actually a project I'm about to start and have done some work on. Maybe you can tell me, what do you think is the one most universal experience to human beings across time and place? Interesting. That would be birth and death, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so birth and breastfeeding. And in my research, there isn't a single book written about breastfeeding in antiquity. There are a few articles and chapters, and it seems like it's one of these things that there's a culture to, you know, who's doing the breastfeeding, what kind of medical, social, economic factors influence feeding infants. And, you know, it's, it's required for survival, especially in a time when there's no formula milk, you know, <laughs> and hospitals and so on. So I want to look at what the cultures are of breastfeeding. And so things I keep finding are documents and sources relating to women who are not just feeding their own infants, but feeding other people's infants as well. So we have lots of evidence for wet nursing and uh, milk siblings and sharing uh, of nursing as well between family members, but also as an economic activity as well. So we have women of different social groups doing this. We have women who are enslaved as well with with infants that they're nursing. And I kind of I haven't found all the answers to my questions yet. I'm still finding the questions. But I want to know about attitudes towards nursing mothers in different situations. So I ask questions like, you know, was it considered... Um, you know, morally virtuous to nurse your own children or to hire a wet nurse? And the answer is different depending on which yeah. sources you look at. You know, so we yeah. have some people say, you know, this great, the great example of a great mother, um, Cornelia. She was a good example, a good Roman mother, and she nursed her own two children uh, who were the Gracchi brothers, who were these 
uh, great sort of politicians who were very well renowned in the Roman Republic. And part of the myth around Cornelia is that she breastfed her own children. So that to me says there was something culturally valuable about feeding your own infants. But then when we look at Egypt, we have documents where people refer to hiring wet nurses and to them being quite well well to do, you know, not enslaved women, free women who were actually earning a lot of money by wet nursing. And then the legal sort of setup around them was geared up to protect them um, and to help them um, make a living out of nursing. So then I ask, well, what happens to their own children? Because if you're if you're providing milk for other people's children, then you must have recently had an infant yourself. So who, are yep. you still able to feed them? Where is all of this happening? <laughs> How does it affect women's lives, children's lives? Um, yeah, so there's lots of questions around breastfeeding that, that historians have not thought to ask. And so I would, that's a... I yeah. wouldn't discount the whole... Uh, the, the whole um formula use because uh, i mean mm -hmm. they did come up with a lot of weird stuff well yeah they actually we know about um medical knowledge of different kind of herbal things herbal remedies for things things like contraceptives uh, there's lots of evidence for and we have some things i've found in my work in museums is little bottles so infant feeding and weaning bottles so when when young infants are gradually being given animal milk we have these small bottles that are shaped like animals, like pigs or, you know, with little faces on them. <laughs> you can imagine like, to a, you know, a child's toy almost. And we have these with residue of animal milk and protein in them as well. So we do have evidence that, you know, different methods of weaning and different animal milks were tried and all of these kind of things. So, yeah, it's something I want to explore a lot more. There's a lot of evidence that spans hundreds of years across an entire globe, pretty much. And it's a matter of bringing some of that together and asking the right questions, I think. And that's so, something that you don't tend to see much of in the history books. <laughs> no, you do not. Uh, but the, so uh, the, the question is, uh, was the attitude towards breastfeeding positive or negative uh, uh, to the Romans? Was it... if? If uh, if you if you had the if you had the means with which to pay someone to do it, would we prefer to do it yourself, or would you just still go ahead and pay someone? Well, this is the question. It depends where you are and who you are. I think, um, and we have the words of one author called Juvenal who wrote these very um, he wrote these things called the satires, which were these long poems talking about different aspects of life in Rome. And one of those poems is is very misogynistic. It shows a real hatred of women. And in one of in that poem, he talks about um, women of a certain station, a certain standard in life, would be the ones nursing. So he thinks anyone nursing an infant who's not their own would be uh, an enslaved woman, uh, not of very high social standard or worth. Um, whereas across the rest of the world. The evidence points in the other direction. So I think the attitude is very different in different sections of society. And I think the very elite men in high politics, in in cities like Rome and important cities, they would have wanted people to nurse, mothers to nurse their own children. They would have 
used this example of the famous Cornelia and said, you know, a good woman would produce good, strong children of her own. And then the medical writers that we know about say, well, you should use a wet nurse for two or three days after the birth of an infant, and then the mother should feed the child themselves. And then we get places in Egypt where wet nurses are used throughout the infant's first three years. So it's completely different depending on where you are and who you are. Um, So, yeah, no clear answer to it, but um, lots and lots of questions. What's another black swan that you are working on? Uh, Another black swan is um, objects. So when I try to look at the lives of children and young people, and I've been talking to you today about, you know, the documents that we have and the lives of children and young people that we can get a sense of from these documents. One thing that I want to look more at is, is play. And so in a project I recently worked on, I was looking at objects that that we could describe as toys. And I think, well, play is a very important part of development. So, you know, people study, you, you, know, you know, between not and five years old children. It's a very important formative part of life. And playing with toys and with other children and with adults is a huge part of the development of your mind, your social skills, your identity, all those sorts of things. And I want to look at, you know, do we know anything about that from the ancient world? And it turns out we do. So if you look at these objects, we've got objects that show children were actually involved in making objects. So little figurines and dolls, that kind of thing. We also have evidence of toys that you could play with quite actively. So a little horse, for example, that goes on wheels and you pull it along but you had to play with two or three other children with it because they're too big for one pair of hands. With wheels? Sorry? You said with wheels. Yeah, from that there, I was like, oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, they would have wheels because they had carriages in that, at that point. Yeah, yeah. So they had like... Um, one thing that we do find in places where there's a strong military presence... Um, you will find horses quite a lot because of their association with the, the cavalry. So, you know, sons of soldiers and veterans would be encouraged to play with horses. Uh, and then we got, we've got lots of these horses that are like, if you can imagine a modern toy that's a pull-along horse on wheels, they're exactly like that, but made of wood instead of plastic. And, you know, the wheels go on an axle across the bottom uh, and the thing is wobbly, you know, it's never quite even. Um, and yeah, we've got lots of those. So I try to sort of think about where children may have been playing with these, who they were playing with, what evidence we have for their physical environment, but also their social environment as well. Here's a question. Um, Mm -hmm. when you think about kids playing with toys, uh, there's, there's actually, there are rules governing that, uh, rules that aren't written anywhere, but that kids just naturally adopt. Um, mm-hmm. For example, um, two or more kids playing outside with one ball will become a game. Yeah. Um, two or more kids where one of them has uh, a rope or something will become some sort of a competition of pulling. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any types of games recorded that kids played back then? 
Yeah, this is a really good point because it it picks up on the sort of natural behaviours of very young people that we know even when, you know, scientists now look at very young toddlers and do exactly these kinds of experiments where they see, you know, what do children instinctively do with the different objects? And there's no reason to believe they would have done different things in the past. And what we have is, for slightly older children, I would say, we have games. So we have types of like small knuckle bones and marbles and dice type objects where it's very clear that you have to put things in a certain place and play a game with a structured set of rules that are very simple that a young child could understand. We have these horses that you can pull along and push and so on. And the great thing about some of the figurines and dolls that we have is that they're all posable. So we have lots of dolls where the arms and the legs can move so you can kind of get them doing things, <laughs> posing and playing. So, yeah, we can actually, you know, sometimes we think we're we're making a lot of assumptions, but actually it's very clear that if you put a doll in a child's hand and the arms and legs move, that they will move the, the arms and legs and engage in some form of pretense or a scenario of some sort that they've imagined. I'm yeah, assuming we- that... I'm assuming that that little girls had their own version of Barbie dolls. (laughs) Well, this is a really interesting thing because when I teach students, I teach using some of these objects. And every year, the female students tell me exactly what I did when I was a girl and was given Barbie dolls, that I used to tear the heads off them. And every year, there's at least one or two students who tell me this. (laughs) And it makes me think that, yeah, it makes me think that sometimes... You know, an adult might produce an object for a child to play with and that adult has a certain idea about what that that toy is for and then the child has a completely different idea. (laughs) And it just goes to show how a child's mind is going to work very differently to what what is expected of it. Um, And I quite like the idea that you give give kind of military toys to boys and um, cosmetic toys and child-rearing toys to girls but actually they always do something different with them. Um, and I, I like that. I like that rebellious spirit in children. And I like to think that 3,000 years ago they, they were doing the same things. Oh, I'm sure they were. And uh, <laughs> I'm also sure that, and that the son of a soldier would definitely play with a horse. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and <laughs> the son, and because they also had, they also had uh, you know, um, you know, they had the Barbie dolls and everything like that. But what what I what I what I'm wondering is, in in absence of all that, uh, and you just like you put together a group of kids of different families and different social statuses and everything like that, which game would they gravitate to? I I well, I th- I would like to think that they would gravitate towards anything that involved playing with the other children. So, um. If we think about the way in which children lived, most of their life would have been outdoors, in fact. And in the houses that I uh, look at, so their domestic lives, they would have been sharing an outdoor space, a courtyard with with other families as well. And childcare would have been shared between families or the branches of the same family. Families would have been quite large. So if you were a child in that society... You, you would never have been by yourself. You would always have had other children with you. And 
there might be a point at which you reach a certain age, say 10 or 12 years old, and there would be a young baby in the family that you would sometimes have to care for as well. And so I think, you know, whether you're at home or you're in a workshop or an education setting or an agricultural setting, wherever you were as a young person, you were surrounded by other children. And so I think it would be quite natural in those circumstances that, you know, you would make a toy out of anything usually, wouldn't you, as a child, you know, a, a small object that you find could be turned into a ball that you could play uh, with and throw around. And we might never know that as historians because that doesn't survive. But, you know, we it's my instinct to think that the sorts of games that children would have played with naturally would have been those sorts of things that they could play with together. So throwing a ball between each other or those knucklebone dice games and things. Um, there, and there are two yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that, that's the kind of thing I would imagine and that all the evidence I've seen points towards. There are, there are two games that I'm, I'm just curious to know if they, if they, if they existed even then. Uh, one of them is Hide and Seek, and the other one is, uh, is because um, uh, cops and robbers and sheriffs and Indians has gone through all kinds of, you know, because it's, all, it's always the authority versus the rebels. So that, um, I wonder if that existed even then. Maybe, maybe instead of cops and robbers, it would have been whatever the you know the the guard, the the city guard <laughs> versus the I don't know. yeah the the army and whoever the native. I, I I suspect. I mean, it's so hard to tell. We, this is just not written down or in any of the. But you're making me think now. This is a question I've not asked myself and would be a fascinating thing to find out. But certainly hide and seek certainly hide mm. and seek which which is which is a game that's ubiquitous all over the world yeah okay. and if you if you think about the physical setting uh, so if you think about a town like pompeii uh, or rome or herculaneum there would have been lots of nooks and crannies and side streets and corners and well you know places where water was produced and so lots of places for children to hide and we do have evidence of what we think are children's drawings and scratches and graffiti and, and things like that. So I think, you know, that physical kind of hide and seek kind of game would certainly have, have taken place. Cops and robbers, not so sure about, but um, I would imagine that, you know, um, fathers and mothers of a certain status might have attitudes towards people of a different status and might encourage their children to say, you know, um, we're we're the you know Egyptians. You're the Romans, and play games like that. But I don't know how far that might have. We'd never know. I don't think as historians we could ever know that. That makes sense. Mm. Were there were there were there no orphanages in Rome? So the situation with um, it, children who'd been um, orphaned or abandoned uh, is. Is a really difficult one to 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 get into, and we don't have any formal orphanages in the Roman world, like in the later sort of foundling hospitals and so on. In the late Roman period, we have the monasteries, of course, and young children would go to monasteries uh, or be sent to them. Um, but in the earlier period, what we get is a system of well, it's not necessarily a system, but people would. Um, you know, unfortunately, slave traders would pick up exposed and abandoned infants, foundlings, and then raise them as slaves. 
And they actually were the people who were employing these wet nurses to feed these young infants so that they could then be sold on as as enslaved people. So um, it's a bit of an unpleasant dark side to, to, to childhood there and to life. But um, there's no formal system. But what we do know is we do have evidence that, that people took in other people's children, you know, so particularly in the same family. So we've got lots of evidence of aunts and uncles looking after their children in very formal and informal ways um, if their parents were no longer around, for instance. So we do have lots of evidence of that. Um, we, we also have evidence of young people being fostered um, as well. We see that in documents. But adoption tended to be something between adults. So in Roman law, you could adopt another adult and that would help you kind of keep family uh, finances together in a way that you might not be able to otherwise and so on. But yeah, it's there were no formal orphanages um, of the type that we might think of from, from later periods of history. In my mind, I'm thinking of um, some kind of uh, organization or repository of unwanted children, which might have recorded the actions of the children. I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, well, nowadays you have, um, you have uh, Catholic schools mm. uh, where kids go. And then whenever you do something wrong, of course, there's a report. So there would be a, there would mm. be a paper trail of, uh, you know, um, Billy did this or Jenna did that. Ah. <laughs> uh, does, does nothing like that exist? <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately. We get that in the later Roman world. So when the monasteries um, have lots of children in them, uh, who are all, of course, learning um, the, uh, the the Christian texts and, and authors and so on. There are some things like that, but not like a formal report system, just sort of documents mentioning um, maybe uh, young people misbehaving or adults misbehaving around children and so on. But we, um, the only place we would have that is, for instance, okay, I thought of one document that I can uh, recall, which is, in a workshop where you have an apprenticeship uh, document set up. So we have the contract uh, is drawn up and it's it kind of already puts in the contract what will happen if the young boy doesn't obey the rules. Um, so it's not a case where we get a report of what's happened, but we get a, the fact that someone drew into their contract, well, this is what will happen if this person is idle and doesn't do the work or if they don't learn properly, or if they don't show up, or, or whatever. So things like that were built into the contracts for apprenticeships. But yeah, we don't have any kind... It's such a shame, as an ancient historian, that we, we, we don't have was these archives. Was there a governing body? Was there no. a governing body for, for no, these no, apprenticeships? No. Um, for the apprenticeships, no. The fact that they were drawn up, though, the contracts, suggests that if anything went wrong there would be um, a point of recourse legally. So um, whilst not a governing body, the I Roman see. state and the law was kind of, uh, was there if if needed for, for various things. And in the later period, of course, the church, Christian church became an institution and would be in effect a governing body of, of children in monasteries um, and so on. Was there such a thing as a guild, as guilds? Uh, guilds were 
we we know about associations and it's or uh, unions maybe mm, yeah associations i think they they would call them um we that weren't formalized and we know in various parts of the roman world there were associations of people who did particular types of work so there would be an association of winemakers or an association of fullers or tanners or textile workers but i think these are more they're less kind of unions and protective things and more almost like freemasons um and there to kind of protect the interests of the people who are already quite wealthy and powerful rather than those who need protection <laughs> if you see what i mean so there's no evidence of any kind of formalized support networks um and you know we're we're in a world where the support network that you have as as a regular person or a child or a woman or even a person with a disability or as a an outsider in some sense your support network has to be family and charity of of you know the good nature of the people around you uh, and the networks that you can build up yourself the law is there as a kind of last resort the roman law but often is very difficult to access for a lot of people um and it's only uh from say the 4th century ce onwards where the church tries to take on the christian church and individual monasteries trying to take on that role of support network in particular ways um but otherwise the nothing else exists really there isn't that kind of system what what would be your third black swan <laughs> my third black swan uh, so something interesting i'd like to to know more about is um something i want to look at a lot more in the future is um how people with certain disabilities uh were, were viewed so one thing that we might not know necessarily or think about is that certain disabilities were not actually disabilities and when you think now about the kinds of physical or mental uh or you know cognitive um uh disabilities that that some people have or difficulties or chronic illnesses in fact a lot of these things were far more prominent in the ancient world uh because because just of the nature of the physical environment and it it would be interesting to sort of see how normalized in a way uh certain disabilities were so things like blindness and deafness were a lot more common than they are now and one thing that quite a few scholars say uh when we look at ancient history and disabilities is that actually life may have been a bit more easy um than it than it, it can be now in some respects so if people had uh if if say for instance someone was deaf or blind that would be a lot more common uh in people's minds than it is today and less hidden from view so in fact you know if 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 you had that kind of disability or a common disability um actually you would have got a lot more support uh then then you might think um that that you would have done and that's primarily because you know the support networks around you are family uh, and so on and these things are just not hidden from view in the same way as modern society tends to hide hide them yeah disability so think... is actually something i know a little bit about uh okay. the mother of my son is uh, has cerebral palsy so uh, oh, i'm okay. well acquainted with 
yeah. one two two of the things that, that uh two of the things that, that uh, affect uh, the disabled community uh, the most is uh, the availability uh, and ease of transportation and the availability and uh, and the availability of jobs mm -hmm. uh, specifically for disabled um, yeah. what well, yeah. what's your outlook on those two things well i think part of the out, part of the reason behind uh, those kinds of visibility and access is because disabilities in you know so say it in the uk even or, or or anywhere in the in the modern world i guess that those disabilities are are kind of not normalized in the way that we would hope so those people are seen more so people with any kind of disability are seen more as a a problem to be solved than as people with rights and expectations and so on whereas in the past all right there, there may not have been jobs and transport to the same extent that there are now but people with disabilities would have been equally um have you know have equal rights to use those and make have access to them in a way that that seems beyond us now at the moment so yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird transition that we seem to have kind of regressed as we've gone forward with time uh, in in some respects with those things and it's something that I want to know a lot more about and to research a lot more. Um, but as I say, I think it's it's more an issue of attitude towards people and the fact that, you know, when you when you develop systems of jobs, employment, transportation, all of those things, you know, it, we seem to have kind of the people who are hidden from us or that we, we culturally hide away from ourselves or don't think about as much as we should we don't build them into the process they get left behind and in a way in the past that necessarily wasn't the case um, and so you look at say the early medieval church um, or even in the early modern period you know many of the the activities of the church certainly worship was designed around people who who had deafness or blindness or those things those people were very much part of the planning of activities, not just a problem to be solved as an afterthought. So there's lots to, to think about, and it all comes down to cultural attitudes more than anything. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. For, for the longest time, like uh, as far as like the disabled community goes, that what I've heard is that really, really what it comes down to is uh, they want to they wanna have the opportunity to, uh, to be productive. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And they have the right to, you know, we we should have those rights. They are enshrined in law, but in practice, it doesn't seem as though as a society we've caught up with that. Um, and, you know, we need to build those things into our planning in a way that, that makes it so that people don't have to uh, scrabble around to try and get those rights back. It should be part and parcel of all of our planning. What was the attitude of teenagers in Rome towards the disabled? Um, well, it, it, yeah. I mean, there wouldn't have been a category of people, you know, the, the notion of disability wouldn't necessarily have existed in that way. So, you know, a teenager might not have sort of thought, uh, what about people with disabilities? Um, they would have been surrounded with, other people, some of whom may have had some kind of disability that they would have just recognised and incorporated into 
to whatever activity they were doing. So I don't think it was necessarily this kind of division of people that that we that we sometimes see today. I see. I see. Oh, Tepatsi, I think uh, I think that's going to be it for this podcast. There's actually a lot more of the stuff that I would like to talk about, but I want I want to make it manageable for the people who are listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Let's been an that. absolute joy to talk to you, and uh, I, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoy talking about this. And you've actually got me thinking about some of my research and some questions that I want to ask myself as I'm doing more research. So it's been useful for me to have this conversation. I would really like to have you back on when you're when when you finish your papers. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. As um, as like a conclusion, uh, this is what I found out. These are the yeah. these are the new these are these are this is the new information. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you all about more. I can answer more of the questions about breastfeeding or disabilities and so on once I've I've finished doing some of the more of the research on that. Yeah, that would that would be great. I'd love to come back and, and talk more about that. Yeah. Could you kindly put then uh, put a memo to just uh, just send me a little a little message in the Twitter or, or Facebook uh, when you're finished? That way we can set up uh, the conclusion. Yeah, definitely. I will do that um, early next week. I will I will send you a message to do that. Definitely. Um, is there? Would you like to plug something? Is there? Is there a business or a product or anything else or a, a book or say anything else um, you'd like to plug? No, no, no. If 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 uh, people want to follow me on Twitter. Um, at April Pudsey, then I I kind of promote all of my publications through Twitter and my activities. Um, so when I publish papers and book, have a book coming out as well, I can just promote on Twitter. So if people follow me on Twitter, um, that's the best way to see uh, any of the activities and the books and the products that I'm involved in. That would be great. Fantastic. Also, if you have if you have colleagues who who would like to come on uh, and talk about what they're working on, I would love to have them on. Oh, definitely. I will. I will recommend you to to, to some of my colleagues, certainly in history and politics and philosophy. Uh, and yeah, I can send you a message on Twitter with uh, some of their details, <laughs> so you can contact them. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you a lot, Dr. Putsey. You okay. have a great day. Or sorry, and great you, night. It's it, nighttime over there. Well, it's, it's <laughs> evening now, but yeah. And one, once the podcast is, when you edit it and publish it, could you send me a link to it and I can help promote the podcast on Twitter as well? Oh, of course. Of course yeah. I will. Course uh, I wonderful. Will. Wonderful. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You have a good night. Okay. Good night now. Bye. Oh!